Well, for those who enjoy stories, whether as novels or, or television shows or as film, what genre are you most likely to read or to watch? What do you find most engaging? Comedy or, or action or drama or fantasy? The, the genre, genre that I'm most drawn to is probably either science fiction, for various reasons, or detective stories. Most detective stories are murder mysteries. And at least with respect to the, the detective stories that have been made into the television series as of late, they, they seem to be increasingly be quite dark. That's because the world is quite dark. And because each one of us is, is caught up in, in a cosmic battle between darkness and light, between good and evil. And by observing others, the characters in the story, strive to expose the darkness and to bring the light of justice to the extent that justice is possible on this side of eternity, well, observing that, it stirs us up to, to make our own sacrifices for the sake of what is right. And it stirs us up to long for the perfect justice that is yet to come. Increasingly, uh, the, the main protagonists in these justice stories are far from perfect. It's the archetype now known as the tortured hero, who is not only fighting the villain, but is fighting his or her own internal demons, as they say. And so long as it's not taken too far, sometimes it's taken too far, but as long as that, that archetype of the tortured hero is not taken too far, it adds depth to these characters that, that really resonates with us. Because all of us are far from perfect ourselves. And when we're honest, we're often able to see the glimpse of the villain in our own hearts, just as we see in the hearts of these tortured heroes. I invite you to turn with me to Esther chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. You can find it on page 445 in the first half of the Pew Bible. Just open up the middle of the Bible. You'll be in the Psalms. Turn to the left. You'll find Esther. I'm going to begin by reading the first four verses aloud. Esther Chapter 2, verse 1. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel, under custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them, and let the young woman, woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. Let us pray. Fathers, we thank you for the gift of your word. We pray for you to illumine our minds with the light of your word. Bring the truths that we see here to bear upon our own souls that we may be better equipped to spread the light of truth to those around us. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. So our passage begins after these things. That is after the events of chapter 1. We're at the end of uh, 187 days of feasting. The, the drunken king of the most powerful empire in the world calls for his queen, to be paraded before his guests 
in order to flaunt her physical beauty, treating her as just another one of his possessions to be admired, not as a human being equally made in the image of God whose identity and worth cannot be reduced to her looks. But his queen, Queen Vashti, refuses to come. And the king and his counselors scurry around to try to figure out what to do, knowing that such a refusal to do the king's bidding, it threatens the very stability of his empire. For what will happen if all the people start to stand up for what is right? And so the king issues a foolish and desperate decree that his queen Vashti can never again appear before him and that every man be master in his own household in a way the king clearly is not. Verse 1, after these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Okay, so, so how much time has passed after these things, after chapter 1, before he remembered Vashti? We're not quite told how much time elapses. Uh, the events of the first chapter took place during the third year of his reign, 483. And the next time marker doesn't come until verse 16 of chapter 2, where we're told that the new queen was crowned in the 10th month in the seventh year of his reign. So from the third year to the, the seventh year. So, so four years passed before the new queen was crowned. And at least three years had passed before she even began her 12 months of beauty treatments. Now, as for how long the search had gone on during those three years before she was even found, we're not told. Perhaps most of those three years, the search was on. Notice the qualifications in verse 2. Beautiful, young virgins. Qualifications which Queen Vasti, no doubt, had met when she first became queen. Notice here that there's not any mention of the one thing that had disqualified Vashti, leading to the decree that the king uh, give her royal position to another who is better than she. Better how? What, what were they looking for? What was someone going to be better than Vashti at? Well, better at obeying the king's every demand, demeaning as they may be. Now, per perhaps it's just assumed that, that any beautiful young virgin who, who doesn't stand up against this lewd, demeaning competition Perhaps it's just assumed that she will necessarily prove more compliant than Vashti. But these superficialities, the qualifications here, they're obviously not what defines a person's identity or their worth or their usefulness. Such superficialities are certainly not what God looks for when selecting those whom He will use to accomplish His purposes on the earth. Consider God's instructions to the prophet Samuel regarding the selection of a replacement for the first king of Israel. 1 Samuel 16, 7, The Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance. Do not look on the height of his stature. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance. The Lord looks on the heart. This is a recurring theme throughout the Bible. And it jumps out here as these fools search for someone better than Vashti. So the king appoints officers in all the provinces of his kingdom, 127, to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa. Recall that this is one of the largest empires in the history of the world, the largest at the time, spanning from the western edge of India 
all the way to the, the eastern edge of Ethiopia in the southwest and Greece in the northeast, thus including the, the tiny little land of Israel. This ingathering, it takes place throughout all of that vast empire, an estimated 50 million people. But this is not the beautiful Cinderella story that people sometimes like to make it out to be. This is horrific. This is enslavement. This is human trafficking. In verse 8, we'll see the language of these girls being taken and put in custody of the chief eunuch. They're not being given a choice. Simply by virtue of living within the king's realm, you belong to the king. Your labor, your body, your everything. Ancient historians record that the Persian harems uh, grew to include more than 360 women. Those taken into the harem would never leave to marry. They would never leave to otherwise return to their families. They would spend the rest of their days as playthings for the king to enjoy. We are meant to be disgusted, and yet not at all surprised by this display. This grotesque kind of evil rears its head all over the world today. And while there may not be any one man today who is powerful enough to, to pull off quite this show of debauchery, it happens on a smaller scale all the time. And not just by the wicked tyrants who sit atop the kingdoms of the world, though it happens there. And not just by the elites, like those who buddied up with Jeffrey Epstein. No, this, this is happening on a smaller scale in every major city in our nation. It's the fastest growing criminal industry in the world today. With millions of people currently enslaved across the globe. And tens of thousands enslaved in trafficking for this reason in the U.S. Tens of thousands. Now, even upstanding citizens in America who say they wouldn't dare stoop to, to these lows, to, to enslave and to abuse people for their pleasure. Well, how many of them then turn around and, and scour the Internet every night for images and videos of beautiful young people to satisfy their desire? They are little would-be Hajuarises. They're simply lacking the same kind of power that he had at his disposal. In 1887, uh, Lord Acton famously wrote, power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. But that's not quite right. The science fiction writer who wrote Dune, Frank Herbert, he famously wrote, power attracts pathological personalities. It's not that power corrupts, but that it's a magnet to the corruptible. Well, that's not quite right either. As you consider the, the massive size of the industries directly related to the horrors that we see here, and thus the huge number of people, the millions of people who exhibit the same kind of wickedness put on display by Hahajuaris, just on a smaller scale, but you recognize that, you, you recognize that it's not that power corrupts or that power simply attracts the corruptible. It's that power reveals and amplifies the corruption that's already there. It's not that power corrupts, but that it reveals, it exposes, and it amplifies the wickedness that is already there. Giving someone power, like 
given to her as you wear it. It's like pouring gasoline on the little flames of corruption that are already there in their hearts. It didn't create that corruption. It fueled it. Our darkest desires are not of an entirely different sort than those of the worst tyrants on earth. But this is not how the most powerful king of all treats his subjects. This is not how the only king in creation with the inherent power to do all that he desires, this is not how he treats his bride. This gets back to to one of the main points from chapter 1 from last week, which is a recurring message throughout the book. The glory of even the greatest kingdom of the earth pales in comparison to the glory of the kingdom of God. And that's because the glory and honor of the greatest kings of the earth pale in comparison to the glory and honor of the king of kings. While the kings of the earth, they they sacrifice the purity and they sacrifice the freedom of their people for personal pleasure, the one true king sacrificed his own life to make his people clean and pure, to set them free from sin. It's quite a contrast. And that's meant to be seen in the text. Moving on to verse 5. Now there was a Jew in Susa the citadel whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, when Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. Now, obviously, this is not saying that Mordecai had been carried away with King Jeconiah in the wave of exiles taken into captivity in Babylon in 597 B.C. The events here in Esther chapter 2, when we see Mordecai, this is taking place 117 years after Jeconiah was taken into captivity. Rather, it's clearly saying here that one of his ancestors had been taken captive, whether it would be Jair or Shimei, probably Kish, the last one named. What it's saying is that Mordecai was born in exile. The Hebrew wording of verse 6 there is interesting as you keep your Bible before you. Verse 6, the word for exile in the Hebrews repeated four different times in this verse. It's calling to mind the sinfulness of God's people that led to their exile. But 59 years, 59 years have passed by this point since God raised up Cyrus, king of Persia, to liberate those exiles so they could return from captivity in Babylon and Persia back to the promised land to rebuild the temple, 539. It was not optional for God's old covenant people to live in the land that had been promised to Abraham, the land that had been given to the people during the time of Joshua. They were required to live in that land. That's what it meant to be God's people living in God's presence. Just as every male Israelite was required to observe the three pilgrim feasts each year, Passover and Pentecost and the Feast of Tabernacles, all three of those pilgrim feasts every year, the men of Israel were to make a pilgrimage to the temple in Jerusalem from wherever they lived within the land of Israel. And yet, despite those requirements, despite the the availability of returning to the land, like so many of the other descendants of the first exiles, here Mordecai remained in the Far East. As for why any given individual remained in Persia instead of returning to Israel, 
whether during the first wave that returned in 539, you can read about that in Ezra chapter 1, or during the second wave that returned after the time of Esther in 458, you can read about that in Ezra chapter 7, or during the third wave that returned in 445 with Nehemiah, you can read about that in Nehemiah chapter 2. As for why any individual didn't return in those three ways, as for why most never returned, well, we're not explicitly told. Reading in Ezra and reading in Nehemiah of the challenges faced by those who did return to the land of promise and tried to rebuild the temple and the city, well, reading of those challenges and reading of how well things seemed to be going for those who didn't return, like Mordecai and Esther and Ezra and Nehemiah over in Persia, well, it would appear that ease of living had something to do with their refusal to obey God and return to the land of Israel. As for what we do know about this man, Mordecai, Mordecai is not a Hebrew name. It's a Hebrew transliteration of a Babylonian name, Marduka. Marduka means worshiper of Marduk, worshiper of the Babylonian god, Marduk. So from the start, from the time that he's introduced, questions are being raised in the reader's mind about Mordecai's allegiance. Why has he and his family remained in exile? 59 years after they could have returned. Why does he use such a distinctly pagan name, worshiper of Marduk? And does this mean that Mordecai is morally compromised? If he is, can God and will God use such a morally compromised servant to accomplish God's redemptive purposes? These are questions being raised by the text. Verse 7, Mordecai was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, making them cousins, for she had neither father nor mother. So we're told of her Hebrew name, Hadassah, which means myrtle, as in the myrtle tree, and we're told immediately of her Persian name, Esther, uh, which appears to be a transliteration of the name of the Babylonian goddess Ishtar. You've got Mordecai named after the Babylonian god Marduk and Esther, possibly named after the Babylonian goddess Ishtar. Well, these two names, regardless of what they mean, it raises the topic of living with two identities, living in two worlds, living between two kingdoms. We all live as citizens of one of the kingdoms of the earth. Collectively, the kingdoms of the earth are referred to as the kingdom of the world. Revelation 1, 11, 15. The kingdom of the world, the, the entire world system that stands in opposition to God's righteous rule and reign. Revelation eleven fifteen it reads this way. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet. There were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. So a day is coming when the kingdom of the world will be brought to its final end. But until that day comes, a war is raging for the hearts of men and women living in the kingdoms of the earth. The question for each one of us is, which kingdom holds our ultimate allegiance? The kingdom of the world or the kingdom beyond this world? It's not simply a matter of what we proclaim with our lips. It's a matter of what we prove with our lives. This woman she has two names. But the question raised in your mind as you get to that verse is, is she living as Hadassah the Jew 
Or is she living as Esther the Persian? Verse 7 continues, The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at, so she meets the qualifications. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai, her cousin, took her as his own daughter. Obviously a a commendation of his character. Verse 8, So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa the citadel in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. Again, Mordecai and Esther, it's not like they're being given a choice here. And yet, neither was Vashti a few verses earlier when she risked everything by refusing to come before this wicked king. The narrator of the text, he bookends this passage by mentioning Vashti in verse 1 and mentioning Vashti again in verse 17 ensuring that Vashti's example is not forgotten as we read about this search for another who is better than she in regard to complying with the immoral demands of this king of the world. Verse 9, And the young woman, Esther, pleased Haggai the eunuch and won his favor, and he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace to serve her and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Repeating the the questions raised earlier about Mordecai's allegiance, now we ask, why has Esther remained in exile? Why does she use such a distinctly pagan name? Does this mean that she is morally compromised? We're left wondering. That is, until we read the rest of the passage. Verse 10, Esther had not made known her people or her kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and and what was happening to her. Again, another commendation of Mordecai's character regarding his genuine concern for the well-being of the cousin that he had raised as his daughter. But had he taught her well, he commanded her not to make known her people or kindred. Is hiding her ancestry what God required of his covenant people? As the record unfolds, we'll see in the next chapter that immediately after Mordecai reveals his Jewish identity, a decree is issued for every Jew on the face of the earth to be slaughtered, likely demonstrating that that Mordecai's concerns were well-founded, but were they well-pleasing to God? Understand the biblical context of the book of Esther, meaning understand the events that immediately precede and immediately follow this chronologically. The choices of of Mordecai and Esther, they're being presented in stark contrast both to the the choices of Ezra and Nehemiah, who come right after this, and the choices of Mordecai and Esther are being contrasted with the choices of four young men living in exile who come right before this. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. The four of them were taken off into captivity when they were used, probably they were 13 to 15 years old, when they were hauled away into captivity in Babylon in the east. And we read this in Daniel chapter 1, verse 5. The king, Nebuchadnezzar, assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank, verse 8. But Daniel and his friends resolved that they would not defile themselves with the king's food. 
or with the wine that he drank. Why? Because of God's command. God had commanded his covenant people to eat a restricted diet. He had deemed certain foods like pork and certain ways of eating meat with blood in it to be ceremonially unclean. And God had commanded his covenant people to never eat foods that had been sacrificed to idols, to pagan gods. And so they refused. This was one of several ways that God's people were to be undeniably set apart from the pagans around them. Even while they were exiled away from the promised land, they were to be set apart. In addition to dietary restrictions, there were holy days to be observed, most notably being the weekly observance of the Sabbath. You couldn't hide. It would have been as impossible for Daniel and for his three friends not to make known their people or kindred and yet to remain faithful to God as it was impossible for Mordecai and Esther not to make it known and yet to remain faithful. Impossible. When kingdoms collide, there can be no compromise. That is, when the demands of the kingdom of the world come into direct conflict with the demands of the kingdom beyond this world, our choices prove our allegiance. And yes, Daniel and his friends' choice to take a stand against the kingdom of the world was extremely costly for them. When it was discovered that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to obey the king's command to bow down and worship the golden statue that Nebuchadnezzar had built for himself, what happened to them? They were hauled before the king. They were given the opportunity to bow down, to recant. But they said they'd rather die than sin against their God. And so they were thrown into a fiery furnace from which their God supernaturally delivered them. And when it was discovered that Daniel refused to obey the king's command not to pray to any god except to him, the king, what happened to Daniel? He was cast into a den of lions from which the Lord supernaturally delivered him. And while we, as the, as the new covenant people of God living in the age of the church, while we're not subject to many of the laws that would have unavoidably outed Mordecai and Esther, as it unavoidably outed Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, dietary restrictions, holy days, where we can live, we're not under those laws. Even still, we are a called out people. We too are to be set apart by holy living. To the point that the Apostle Paul writes in 2 Timothy 3.12, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You cannot hide. When the kingdoms collide, there can be no compromise. Our lives prove our ultimate allegiance. So how did Esther fare while living in the king's harem? Verse 12. Now when the time came for each young woman to go into King Ahasuerus after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women. Let's stop there. They're already the most beautiful women in the empire. And then they undergo a year-long beautifying regimen, pampering them with the best food and cosmetics filling out their figures, nourishing their skin, keeping them from hard labor and the elements. Verse 13, after 12 months, when the, when the young woman went in to the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. What does that mean? 
She was able to take whatever she wanted from the harem to the king's palace. Well, understand that after spending the night with the king in this competition, this beauty pageant, after spending the night with the king, the woman would not be able to return to the harem of virgins under the custody of Haggai. Instead, she'd be moved to the second harem, the harem of concubines, under the custody of Shazgaz. It's made clear in the next verse, verse 14. In the evening, the, the woman would go in. In the morning, she'd return to the second harem in the custody of Shazgaz, the, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go in to the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. And when the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter, the time came for Esther to go into the king. She asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. So as for Esther, what, what, what does she take with her from the first harem, since she wouldn't be returning to it? What does she take with her? Well, it's believed that it was either something of great worth, like, like jewelry or, or fine clothing, a form of payment for services rendered, or that it was something that Haggai knew would especially please the king, Ahasuerus, endearing her to him. It's not clear what is meant, simply that she did what she was told. Verse 16, And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus in his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. A Cinderella story? Is that how we're supposed to view it? The orphaned foreigner is exalted as the queen, the greatest superpower on earth. Notice again the, the deliberate contrast that the narrator makes with Vashti. The very crown that Vashti had refused to appear wearing at the king's feast in chapter 1 is now placed on the head of Esther. And a feast is thrown in her honor as the better, more compliant queen. Not only has Esther defiled the marriage bed during her night with the king, she's entered into what is at least in effect a marital union with a pagan, the most powerful pagan on earth, violating God's law. Talk about kingdoms colliding. Now, I recognize that it might make you uncomfortable to take off the rose-tinted glasses through which many of us were wrongly taught to look at God's servants in the Bible. We need to let the Bible tell the story, not overly simplistic children's books. These are the servants that God uses. Noah. Noah got drunk and passed out naked outside of his tent. Abraham. He put his wife Sarah in grave danger, not once but twice, by lying to two different kings, claiming that she was his sister and not his wife, in order to protect his own skin. Moses killed a man and had to go into hiding for 40 years. And then Moses angered the Lord by refusing to obey his call, telling God to send someone else instead of him. David committed adultery with Bathsheba and then organized the murder of her husband Uriah. Peter, he denied the Lord three times. And even after being restored by the Lord, 
He had to be publicly rebuked for having given in to the fear of man by siding with the circumcision party. Galatians chapter 2. The Apostle Paul, to use his own words that we read earlier, was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent of Christ. All of them were sinners in need of a Savior. Not one of them were the heroes of their story. They were all sinners in need of a Savior, and yet all of them were mightily used by God, the only hero of the story, when they offered themselves up to Him as His servants. Just like Mordecai and Esther. Just like me and you. Martin Luther famously said, God can draw a straight line with a crooked stick. The first time I heard that expression, God can draw a straight line with a crooked stick, it's actually in a hip-hop song by an artist called Propaganda. Prop's song calls out preachers in our day who, who romanticize, who glorify the Puritans, the, the vast majority of whom failed to denounce the sins of the African slave trade in their day in the 17th century. But Prop ends his song by acknowledging that he, too, is imperfect. And he says this, the last line of the song, I guess it's true that God really does use crooked sticks to make straight lines. And that's a good thing, because there aren't any sticks that aren't crooked. And while that's no excuse for us crooked sticks to go on sinning, it is an encouragement not to let any past compromises with the kingdom of the world don't let any past compromises make you think that you're somehow beyond God's power to save or beyond God's power to redeem, to use, to advance His kingdom on earth. God will use today's faithfulness despite yesterday's disobedience. God will use today's faithfulness despite yesterday's disobedience. That's the primary message we're learning in chapter 2 of Esther. God uses crooked sticks to draw straight lines. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of your word, and we praise you for your mercy and grace. We pray that you will mightily use us, marred as we are by sin. Use us to draw straight lines. Use us to advance your kingdom purposes on the earth. Bless the preaching of your word. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.